The Keep Birth Wild podcast acknowledges the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners and custodians of the land, sky and waters on which this project is produced, and we pay respect to Elders past and present. We extend this respect to all First Nations people on whose country we live, birth and raise children. We acknowledge the ongoing leadership, resilience and commitment of First Nations people who continue to fight for their right to safe and culturally appropriate experiences of pregnancy, birth and postpartum, and we commit to continuing to explore our own role in that journey. Lastly, we honour and celebrate the ancient birthing knowledge and practices that have existed on this country for thousands of years. May this wisdom continue to nurture life for many generations to come. Welcome to the Keep Birth Wild podcast. My name is Indy, and through this series, I'll be speaking to parents who chose to birth their babies at home. Join me and my guests as we hear honest and heartfelt stories of pregnancy, birth and postpartum. Welcome to the first episode of season two. It's taken me a while to find my way back here, so if you're an existing listener who's been um, waiting patiently, thank you so much for sticking around. In today's episode, Julie Bell is sharing her four birth stories. Julie is a doula and herbalist and the creative genius behind Blissful Herbs. Julie had three home births and one very fast shopping centre birth across three different countries, so this is a really interesting episode. She brings a wealth of wisdom and I really hope you enjoy listening today. Hi Julie, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm so excited to speak to you and um, yeah, excited to to get to know your birth stories and you a little bit better. How are you today? I'm doing really well on this beautiful sunny day. I even got some vitamin D. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Would you like to start by sharing a little bit about yourself and your family and uh, maybe a little bit about your work as well? I'm sure lots of people um, know what you do, but if you'd like to share that for those that don't. Sure. So uh, I started life as a nurse and my mum was a hospital midwife and I'd never heard of home birth but I knew I wanted something different to the hospital, standard hospital birth, and had the amazing opportunity to have my first baby at home in the west of Ireland, which was an incredible experience. Uh, and that only just stoked my interest in all things birth. So on coming to Australia a few years later, I trained as a doula. Then that led to doing a degree in uh, Western herbalism and so I started a little herb business called Blissful Herbs and in particular I wanted to provide herbal support for women uh, during their baby having years. Lots of herbs for just simple common ailments to help people feel better so for little ones things to help with um, coughs and colds and things like eczema um, asthma, headaches, hay fever, uh, sore muscles and aches and pains, and just sort of general stuff like that. Um, and it's all about just having having remedies in the in the in the pantry that you can pull out to help and support your loved ones through any little any minor sort of health challenge they might be having, and and just support uh, good nutritional status, and you know mm. just re- provide some antioxidants to just reduce some of that allostatic load and yeah, it's so I find it um, very joyous work because uh, my happy space is feeling really in tune and connected to nature. And so really I think if there's a philosophy that sums up 
all of the work that I do in the world, it's promoting and fostering connection in, uh, in a culture that has become increasingly affected by disconnection and separation. Um, so everywhere we look, we can see the work of restoring empathy and restoring um, connection in a world that's constantly trying to divide us and pit us against each other and tear us apart. Mm, yeah, amazing. And amazing that you're infusing that into all of your work and that there's so much depth to the reasons why you do what you do. It's, yeah, it's really beautiful and it, it definitely comes across in your products, which I'm sure so many of the people listening will have used before. Mm. Mm. And would you like to share a little bit about your family? Your children? Yes, I've been, my husband is American and uh, we met when we were doing volunteer missionary work over in China, which is, uh, we were there for 17 years and had three of our children while we were serving over there. Uh, and we've been married mm, somewhere between 25 and 30 years, but who's counting? <laughs> and we had three children uh, in rapid succession, three little girls, and then uh, we lost one little baby, and that was an experience of a miscarriage, which was really, really bittersweet that it had its own blessings, and I'm not, I'd have no regrets about that whole experience. It, it was an experience that I actually really treasure even though, of course, you know, it was a loss and it was sad. And then finally we had baby number four, eight years after baby number three, our first boy. Um, so my children are all aged between age 23 and about to get married down to age 10 and just about to embark on puberty. So, yeah, really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, we're going to hear your birth stories today, which I'm really excited about. And um, that's that's a fair way back in time to go back to your first pregnancy. But um, if you want to travel back to that time and just before you conceived, how did you feel about embarking on motherhood and what was what was your sort of awareness of what birth was going to be, what pregnancy was going to be and, and um, yeah, what things, what sort of options for care might look like for you once you were pregnant? Yeah, that's really interesting because we were married for five years before I thought of having children. And so I wasn't a young mum. I was already 30 by the time I conceived. and But I still felt really young within myself, which is quite a classic sort of autism thing. Um, and I was really fit and healthy because of the extremely physical work that we were doing in China. Um, uh, so I still felt like I was just in a world of discovery about what this whole business of becoming a mother was about. And I'd been on the pill for quite some time and conceiving didn't come quickly or easily. And it was really the difficulty around conceiving that made me start doing some research. And I went to the library there in Hong Kong where we were staying at the time and I found so many interesting books from all sorts of different perspectives and uh, sort of fields of expertise and I just felt as if uh, God was just like spoon feeding me the, the necessary and relevant information that I needed. So I found out that, for example, the pill, when you take the pill, there are certain um, fat-soluble vitamins that you tend to store in excess while there's more fragile water-soluble vitamins that you tend to become deficient in, such as vitamin C, E, uh, and B. So therefore, 
uh, I found some studies that showed that taking um, reasonably high doses of vitamin C had been shown to really promote fertility. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to start finding out what foods are really rich in all of the B vitamins. And as a young woman, like I really, even though I was a nurse and we kind of glossed over these sorts of topics um, in my nurse's training, I'd never, I guess I'd never really applied that to myself and my own body. But now I had an incentive to really find out about these things. So I had a list of um, you know, the foods that would support my nutrient um, status in all of these ways. I learned that how important protein was and why I needed magnesium and best ways to get bioavailable calcium and all of these things. So in the length of time that it took me to successfully conceive, I learned heaps about how to look after myself because if you're promoting the health of your reproductive cells, you're actually promoting the health of all of your cells. Um, and then, you know, I looked at it from the perspective of supporting male fertility as well. Um, and then I basically realized the reason I wasn't conceiving was because of the after effects of the pill. And as I supported my body to heal from the pill, guess what? I became pregnant. Um, and so this whole journey of learning, I think, was really empowering because it made me feel responsible for myself and it gave me a sense of confidence that when I researched things carefully and and put together uh, knowledge um, I actually wasn't too bad at um, at researching and putting together information for myself and then I began to share my discoveries um, with other friends and saw some positive they experienced some positive results as well so pretty much at that point I was really I was uh, addicted and <laughs> became a birth junkie <laughs> and um, I had some, some great influences as well. So other people um, in the sort of the expatriate or missionary community who were also bringing their expertise and, and their knowledge of um, conception and pregnancy and birth and I was able to weed out the good information that I thought suited me and discard some of the information that I wasn't so keen on. Um, yeah, so it was, yeah, the whole thing ended up being quite encouraging and empowering for me. Mm, yeah. And you mentioned, I think you mentioned before that your first baby was born in Ireland. Is that right? That's right. Yes. That's right. So did you move um, over there from China during your pregnancy or um, how did things come about? And once you settled in Ireland, what sort of um, birth support did you find there? Mm, well, we, yes, we had been in Hong Kong and then we went to do a six-month training course in England. And so while I was there, I was six months, seven months pregnant and I had the opportunity to join the National Childbirth Trust um, in England and they used to do uh, these sort of like birth education classes. And so there were 12 other couples in the class that we joined and the woman who was running the class kind of eyed me up and, and she got my number pretty quickly and she said, here's a book I think that you would be interested in. And it was Spiritual Midwif Midwifery by Arne Mae Gaskin. And she also gave me a bunch of these, like it's kind of funny now because this really dates the story, um, <laughs> videos like that you play in a VCR if anybody still remembers <laughs> what they are. And so I was watching video footage of women actually giving birth under their own power for the very first time. And I was riveted. 
I thought this was great. And I still remember that NCT leader uh, with great affection because, gee, she did me a good turn and she gave me a great steer. And uh, one of the exercises that we did in her class was she had us do some art and she said, I, I want you to draw uh, representations of what you think childbirth will be like. And I had was my head was full of Ina Gaskin, so I drew waves and ocean, waves breaking on the shore and all of this, you know, real quite hippy-dippy stuff, really. Um, and then I looked around and others were drawing chainsaws and lightning bolts and people getting sword in half and... I thought, wow, that's pretty intense. And later on, out of everybody in that whole class ended up having caesareans except for two people. There was one woman who had her first baby in four hours and the others laughed and said, oh, yeah, we all had caesareans except for the one who sneezed and out came her baby. But there was one other holdout and that was me. And I really felt like the reason that I didn't have a caesarean is because I – uh, had the luxury of being left alone at home to labour for as long as I wanted and needed with no timeline and no time restraints and no rush whatsoever. So really late in the pregnancy, uh, we, we, I realised I had no chance, no, there was just no time to get back to Hong Kong and then get back to Australia because I'd been thinking, oh, I'll go home to Australia to have the baby and then sort of reached the point of going, hey, we, we haven't thought this through. <laughs> it's too late. They won't even let me on the plane. So instead of a plane to Australia, I was on a ferry boat to cross the Irish Sea to Ireland. And that was really interesting because seven generations earlier, my ancestor for whom I'm named had also crossed that Irish Sea when she was fleeing Ireland and being transported to Australia. Um, now, we didn't know about this at the time, but I just really felt like there was a sense of homecoming as I was sitting on that ferry going back to Ireland, and it felt really good being on Irish soil again. And half the time I was going, oh, you're just being a romantic. This is ridiculous. But there was something deep inside of me that recognised Ireland as, as, uh, as, a, as a home place. It was really interesting. Um, thrilled that I got to have my first baby um, in Ireland and we met a midwife and she uh, questioned me very closely to make sure that I didn't have any weird ideas around suddenly rocking up to her country and having deciding on a home birth so late in a pregnancy I remember she was yeah just just carefully questioning me because she you know she as a she would be attending my birth just as a sole midwife um, and the nearest hospital would be an hour away. So she wanted to know that she could trust me. Um, and I was thrilled that she agreed to take me on. And it was actually only two or three weeks later that I ended up going into labour and mm -hmm. she'd only met me once. <laughs> um, and so she came to my home and I'm, I feel incredibly blessed to have been under her care because she was completely patient and hands-off and incredibly trusting of me as a first-time mother. Um, very, very quiet and understated. Um, and she just gave me just enough guidance to sort of give me a steer, but she really also stood back and let me find my own way. And as a fairly independent-minded person, um, that suited me really, really well. Um, and so 
the baby was born in the quiet of the morning as the Irish rain bounded on the roof and we only the only light in the room was from the, the peat fire that we had burning in this um, sort of Irish farmhouse type building that was probably about 100 years old. Um, and it was just an incredibly idyllic experience. Um, and I experienced what it's like to be guided and prompted by your own instincts and your own body compelling you. So one thing that happened is that um, I think I was, I think sometimes with first time mothers, you can get to 10 centimetres dilated and nothing is going to happen until you get to what Gloria LeMay calls 11 centimetres dilated. So it's like your cervix, your cervix has not opened up like that before ever. This is the, its first time. So it can be sort of open but still a little bit tight. And sometimes, you know, people talk about a cervical lip and stuff like that. Well, I was having minimal vaginal exams, so I don't know if I had a lip or not, and I'm so glad that I didn't know. What we did know is that nothing was happening. There was no descent. But I knew within myself, I was sure that I'm fully dilated. Um, and this midwife had the wisdom not to do an, a curiosity examination at that point, but wait for something to happen. Um, and I felt like I needed to be upright. So what the way I was working my way through the contractions was in in an upright position, holding onto my husband's forearms and swaying quite vigorously from side to side. So a contraction would come and I would sort of like freeze like a deer in the headlights. And then I would tell myself, no, if you stand still, it is not going to hurt less than if you move. So move. <laughs> so then I would uh, sort of sway and, and rock from side to side through the contraction. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, I dropped onto hands and knees, just quite out of instinct. And the midwife said with quite a satisfied expression, ah, now the baby's coming. Women often drop to their hands and knees to be close to Mother Earth when the baby's about to come. And she was born. And I experienced the fetal ejection reflex. Uh, so I didn't have to do any volitional pushing at all. It just, this force just took over the same, the same way as you, as, as if you're retching, like to vomit, and you, it just happens. There's nothing you can do to make it happen or stop it from happening. That's what it felt like, um, and it was fantastic. I could feel my face squishing up. I was like, "Huh, what's going on?" I'm, my face <laughs> never does that, and I could feel the stretching in my vulva, and it was amazing. It was like this incredible expulsive force just took over me and it felt good it did not feel scary or traumatic it felt really intense but it really I just remember feeling powerful and satisfied because I had this experience of my body's working and it's working really good and uh, the midwife also said at that time oh look there's that perineal massage paying off because of she could see how my perineum was stretching really good and baby was born I had no tears um and uh, it was and it, uh, my husband caught the baby. He passed it to me. I was holding her and we were speechless. We could not say a single word. We had nothing profound to say <laughs> at that time when we were listening to our little baby's uh, calls. And she didn't, you know, cry or wail. She just sort of went, <laughs> so cute and we were in love we just thought and so it was an incredibly positive um birth experience 
Um, and then after that, I had my amazing herbal bath. Uh, at that time, I ordered these incredible bath herbs from a company in America, which is where I um, ordered all of my birth supplies. And I loved that herbal bath so much. It just felt like something that was just so romantic and deeply symbolic, just sitting in the bath, healing after childbirth, holding my velvety newborn. And um, it was heavenly, it really was. And I remember when I got back to Australia, I was like, I want Australian women to have this treat as well. I want to make birth a bath herbs for them. And that's really like how Blissful Herbs began was with the postnatal bliss healing bath herbs. Mm. And you know how I said before, like I, I draw lessons from nature. So one of the things I really, okay, if there's two things that I would love to bequeath to women soon to birth, one is the spiraling concept and the other one is to go and walk uh, in bare feet in and out of the waves at the ocean and let the ocean speak to you. Um, and go swimming in the ocean and make like a dolphin. Um, so I had some amazing ocean teaching me, talking to me, helping me prepare for birth experiences throughout my four births. Um, and I've noticed that late in pregnancy, I have this deep, deep yearning. There's two things I've got to do. One is reconnect with my women forebears and the other is to get near the ocean and immerse myself in the ocean. So you can't predict. You can stand on the shore and stare out to sea and you cannot control or predict the rhythm of the waves as they come or how forceful or gentle they're going to be. It just is. It's the rhythm of nature. And I just felt like this was like a, a master class in understanding what contractions are like. And if you're in strong surf, stormy surf and the waves are going to come in and you can see a wave forming and it's going to come and crash into you if you stand there fearful of what the wave is going to do and you let it crash into you you'll get tumbled and then you'll get disoriented and it's actually terribly scary it's happened to me a few times and so I learned from that that if you see the wave coming and just before it comes you dive under the wave then you don't get slapped upside by the wave. And that's what was going on in my head as I realized when I feel the contraction coming, if I stiffen and try and brace against it, this is not going to help. I need to dive under the wave. And so what I would do is I would greet the contraction with a deliberate breath before it really mounted. Just when I could sense that it was on its way, I'd take this really deep breath and slow exhale and I'd start to move. And I'd get the rhythm of my swaying going before the intensity of the, the contraction hit. Um, and it's just like an example of, yeah, the waves at the ocean really um, helped me figure that one out. And the other thing I'd just add to that is like that's what worked for me, okay? So what works for me in labor is nobody needs to tell me what to do and nobody needs to put any time pressure on me. It's going to take as long as it takes and I need to walk and stay upright. So except for, you know, lying in the birth ball or having a nap or, you know, most of the time if you see me in labor, you'll see me walking, pacing, standing upright and swaying because that's what works for me. Um, and given the fact that I'm a person who's done a lot of mountain hiking and a you know, heck load of walking all around um, Asia, it makes sense that I would be one who walks to manage labor. Um, so for me, I've seen other women, the way they manage labor is to be completely 
still. I, I supported one woman who all she did was just sit like right on the very edge of her bed, bracing herself with her arms. And as long as nobody touched her, nobody spoke to her, and nobody interrupted her, she was just fine. She had really, really um, short, intense labours and sitting completely still in a deep, deep place of concentration was how she managed her labour. And I was in awe. <laughs> and I, I just loved that her personal style was so different to my own. And I um, just want to really encourage and bless women that, um, you know, trust your own style and your own ways of managing and, you know, trust your own body's wisdom and the way you approach it could be really different. Mm. Um, a good thing to remember. Mm. Yeah. So the and then I read, yeah. I think it was, um, there was a video called Birth As We Know It, um, which I think was a woman from Russia and it was just a really beautiful, inspiring birth video. I encourage people, watch all the video, all the birth videos you can. <laughs> and this one, Birth as, as We Know It, it talked about the spiraling concept. And I sort of meditated on that concept. And I thought, this makes a whole lot of sense to me. So if you think about it, like the circ our circulatory system is a spiral in the clockwise direction. And uh, our digestive tract, again, it's a spiral and it goes in a clockwise direction. Um, and uh, also we've noticed that with rotational positioning, often babies seem to want to rotate through the posterior and around to the anterior position. They often will choose the, the clockwise direction, even if going anticlockwise is actually the shorter route. So you can sometimes start with your baby right anterior and you would think that the baby would just like go right round to the front and then be born, which is what some babies will choose to do. But we have to be prepared for the possibility that the baby may choose to go right anterior, right lateral, right posterior, um, left lateral and then left anterior and then decide to descend and be born. Um, so that I just thought that was really interesting. But I also noticed that, uh, you know, Michel Odont, the French obstetrician, he said birthing women are drawn to water. And I firmly agree that the option of water should be available to all birthing women. That's that's my dream, whether it's a you know, natural body of water or a birth pool or a bathtub or a shower, just something. <laughs> um, and in the same way, I've noticed that spiraling seems to really help. So one of the things that, um, so spiraling your hips, and often if you if you encourage a woman to circle her hips, she will instinctively circle in the direction that is needed to support what the spiraling that her baby is doing. And quite a lot of the time it seems to me that that's a clockwise direction. But if she's instinctively spirals anti-clockwise, there'll be a reason for that. Um, so that's one form of spiraling that you can do in labor. But the other thing that I've done is, you know how you can set up a fitness circuit where you go to um, one activity and, and you do that for two minutes and then you go into another one? Well, mm -hmm. I used to set up contra contraction stations um, in my clients' homes. So there would often be um, a, a circuit that they could walk throughout their home, like through the kitchen uh, past the bathroom, down the hall, through the lounge room, back to the kitchen, and they could literally just like walk the circuit for as long as as many hours as they wanted. 
And along the way, I would just create comfortable little contraction stations, whether it was sitting astride um, a straight back chair or leaning over the kitchen counter, which is nice and sturdy and usually the perfect height, or kneeling down over a birth ball or kneeling on the couch or holding onto the railings here or going up and down these steps here. There would be sort of like little activities for them to do at dotted points all around this walking circuit. And um, that having that circuit to walk and having something to do next um, seemed to really help people manage uh, some of that sort of uh, labor maths and that kind of um, self-talk that can be going on in your head. So that's just a couple of examples of um, the spiraling concept. And I really love for um, to encourage women to – uh, research it yourself and see what it's what what does it speak to you and you know how do you think that might work for you the way that you approach it could be really different but it it seems to me it's a great concept mm, absolutely yeah I love asking that question and and sometimes not asking and and hearing it in interviews of how people coped with the intensity of labor and and all the different ways that people cope and do different things that just sort of arise instinctively for them during labour. And and I think it's beautiful because sometimes educating yourself through story and through listening to other people and sometimes you don't, you wouldn't think that you would remember every single thing but things pop up in labour that you've heard or, um, you know, you've heard or you've read and in a similar way to affirmations can become things that are really helpful. And, yeah, so, I, yeah, that's one thing I love about um, interviewing people is hearing hearing about the different ways that they kind of cope and find things that work and yeah and especially from the experience of someone like yourself who's also a jeweler and attended so many births as well. Mm. <laughs> mm. One of the great values of the podcast that you're doing Indy is the power of story. Um, so I have a theory I don't know how true this is but this is my theory that um, I feel like earlier on in your pregnancy you can use the power of your cerebral cortex to gather information and data and facts and do the learning. But I feel like later in the pregnancy, the shift in our hormones draws us into a much deeper part of our brain. And that part of the brain, um, which is, if you think about the fact that our birth hormones are produced and released in the the um, pituitary gland, which is just under the hypothalamus, which is that really, really deep part of the brain, which is where we process um, symbol and story and deep emotion. So what I find is that when our hormones are mounting towards the end of pregnancy, we become really attuned and super aware and much more spiritually sensitive and in tune and much more susceptible to the power of artistic messages and symbolism and poetry and art and images and impressions and um, anecdotal story. So I highly rate the sharing of stories as a form of birth education because I think it really speaks to and nourishes that deeply intuitive um, aspect of our knowledge. So you know, if we approach things to do with human health and wellness only from intellectual knowledge and only based in, in uh, data and fact, which which I highly rate, by the way, and we definitely need that, um, but also just marrying that to the role of intuitive, instinctive, cultural knowledge, 
um, is really, really important too because it's a different style of receiving and imparting knowledge through the telling of stories. And some cultures have that as a primary way of educating the next generation, probably more so than our culture. So there's lessons there for us to learn. Um, and there was one guy who wrote a book called Narrative Medicine, and he was examining, he was a PhD, and he was examining the power of storytelling um, woven in and out of concepts of, of illness and wellness in other cultures, including his own. And I thought this is absolutely spot on because you need a bit of both. Um, we need the, the empirical, but we also need the intuitive. So mm. what I find is that um, if you find that you're really, really drawn to birth stories and watching heaps of birth videos and, you know, somebody's amazing story or photograph just makes you ball your eyes out, um, you're not being a softie. No, you're using the deeply intuitive knowledge that you're meant to have late in pregnancy to support you in making really personal, safe choices for yourself and your baby, figuring out what feels right for you and having the courage to stick to your guns and, and assert what's important for you. Um, so I love the way that the telling and sharing of stories is part of our birth preparation and our birth education and the way that we bequeath birthing knowledge and wisdom to the rising generations. Mm, I couldn't agree more. You've articulated that beautifully. <laughs> so, yeah, moving forward to your second pregnancy, how were you feeling coming out of sort of postpartum and, and in the throes of early motherhood um, about bringing another child in? You, you mentioned that they were in close succession, the first three, so it must have been all pretty fresh to you. Yeah, I was ecstatic to be a mum. I thought my baby was the most precious, adorable little thing, and I just enjoyed her as a person so much. I was really, really loving motherhood. I'd waited a long time to become a mother, and now this was just like a gift of life. It was fantastic. Um, so really happy days. And when I came became pregnant again, I remember feeling a bit shocked, and I really thought, oh, I can't manage. I, I can't do two. Like, and I remember feeling really flustered and going, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? And um, at that time, um, it was I've had sort of like moments through my life where um, I've sort of really met with God. So I understand everybody's perceptions or the way that we experience God are, are different and unique. So I can only talk. This is my this is how it's been for me. Um, so I really felt I went to a particular course that was talking about how you can pray for your unborn child and. It was just like I had heavenly revelation and I began to hear from God in like a really, really intimate way. And I really felt like God told me that she was going to be a girl. I'm going to cry now. <laughs> and that her name would be Searsha, which was an Irish name that we'd already picked out and knew and loved because it means freedom. And at that time, my husband and I were being really impacted by Christian legalism or fundamentalism, which is basically like the letter of the law and it can be very judgmental and quite damaging. And it seemed that we were journeying out of quite a rigid form of Christianity into a place 
of grace and freedom. So that was the journey that we were on at the moment. And I really felt like God was comforting me and saying, this this little baby, Sisha, the freedom girl, is going to be part of your journey out of bondage and into, into the liberty that I have for you. Um, and I began to sing a song to her in the womb. Um, and the words were, for you were meant to be, you're a daughter of destiny, created in love, formed by his hand. Uh, and I just used to sing this over her. And in this way, I began to really bond with my baby and seeing her as a whole person and a vital part of our family. And I remember, you know, praying for her that she wouldn't, her little spirit would not uh, receive any rejection from the ambivalence that I'd had at first. Um, and then the whole pregnancy and the birth ended up being this incredible journey of faith where I became so convinced that God loved me and he only meant good for me. I felt really safe and really held in God's love. And the baby ended up being born with an almost a pain-free birth, a, um, a really ecstatic birth experience. And she was born, I ended up being born in a shopping mall because <laughs> the contractions were so gentle. I believed that I was only in very early labor and I'd been, I'd been praying like, you know, the whole time. And I came out and I told my friend and my husband and my friend's children, I said, oh, you know, I think I'm in labor. We should probably start to head home. And then suddenly I dropped on hands and knees in the middle of the food court, <laughs> shopping mall. And the security guards rushed over and said, did you need a wheelchair? And my friend, my good friend who knows me well, she says, hey, Julie, there's a childcare room just over there. Why don't we just go there? And I was like, yeah, let's do that. So contraction ended, jumped up, moved as quickly into, the, into this baby care room as I could. There was a breastfeeding um, cubicle there. And there was a chair. So I knelt down in front of the chair, pulled the curtain behind me. Uh, my husband kept the um, the ambulance guys out because they wanted to haul me off to hospital. And my husband said, no, you can't come in. <laughs> and at the next table, there happened to be a midwife um, having her lunch. And she came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, hello, my name's Beryl. I'm a midwife. Would you like me to help you? <laughs> and I said, oh, sure, the more the merrier. <laughs> 20 minutes later, I'm holding my baby. And it turned out that that particular midwife happened to be the colleague of my mother who was working as a hospital midwife in New Zealand at that time. In wow. um, and, and where was so, she born? What country was, was this in Australia? Or? This was in New Zealand. Oh, yeah. oh right. Okay, so you're saying she was born in New Zealand. Okay. <laughs> yeah. so, wow. Um, her birth certificate says that um, Takapuna Mall was the sh Takapuna Shopping Centre was her place of birth. Um, wow! Yeah, and I, I I do tell people watch out for that second birth because they often if the first birth has has progressed fairly normally there's a good chance that if you have a second baby within like two years of the first, um, be prepared for the fact that it could be fairly quick and straightforward. Um, but I also think that being really held in love, like uh, in the Bible it says, perfect love drives out fear. And if there was any birth that I really was not beset by any fear and I felt really, really safe and secure and held in love, it was that birth. And I'm sure that that had something to do with uh, just the way my hormones were operating and the way that I, I felt that sort of sense of ecstasy um, and the way that the birth progressed without any kind of impediment or resistance. 
Um, mm. So that was birth number three, no, number two, the shopping mall birth. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and um, and how did you adjust to being a mother of two very young children? Yeah, I remember um, I had a few meltdowns in public because I was staying. I had not really taught my two-year-old that she needed to stay with me and couldn't run off because she was used to running off wherever and I just run after her. I couldn't now because I had a newborn and I had a classic time where um, she was running off through a crowded shopping mall again. Gosh, what is it with the shopping mall dramas? And I had a, I had a, uh, a shopping cart full of food and my little newborn nestled, you know, in the in her little car seat and I'd lost my toddler and I was in tears. What a terrible mother I was. And this older woman um, brought caught Talitha in her, in her arms and brought her back to me and told me about how I could tell her to hold on to the side of the pram wherever we were going. And then she sat down next to me and she just looked at me and said, Mine are 22 and 20 now. And that's a, that's all she said. And straight away I just knew that she totally, totally got it. And she was so respectful and wise. And it was just exactly what I needed. And that was the turning point. After that I really figured out some little ways and methods of coping. Um, so one of the things that I would do was – um, teach my little two-year-old that when I got her out of the car that she had to keep both hands on the side of the car. So we, I would make like little games out of things and when we would walk down the street um, she would have to hold on to the side of the pram um, until I said she could go um, just to stop her from like tearing off and she was a pretty smart little cookie and I think I think she adjusted too. She realised that she actually had a little sister and <laughs> there was some stuff going on so Another thing that I used to do is, okay, we had no car, right? So we used the pram for everything, shopping, everything, right? So um, I would take my baby sling and when the baby was happy to stay in the pram and be looking around and chatting to his sister and so on, then I would leave her in the pram. But if for any reason she started communicating to me and letting me know that she wanted to be closer to mum, then I would lift her out and pop her in my sling and you know, hold her and cradle her like that. And then maybe the toddler would hop in the pram and I would walk with, um, you know, cuddling my little newborn and pushing my toddler. So these are the ways that we got around as a, as a threesome. Um, and you just, as a young mum, you sort of like figure out these little things. And another thing that I quickly figured out is that my children, if I tried to feed them, this is when they were a bit older and they were both in little high chairs, they were just horrible. Oh, my gosh. It was like every mealtime was insanity. It was just <laughs> ridiculous. And, uh, you know, oh, this is, this is crazy. It was, like, it was like a food fight every time. I was like, this is driving me up the wall. What am I going to do? And then I realised that I pointed their high chairs towards me and I had a stack of cute baby books with all full of bright colours and funny and I would read to them while they were in their high chairs. And I would do all of the voices and make it as amusing as I could. And they would eat with no complaints and no food throwing and no wriggling and no meltdowns and no problems whatsoever. So I was like, oh, I see what needs to happen here. I need to feed their minds as well as their bodies. And I don't know. There's just mm -hmm. a few little things like that that you figure out. And I was also really fortunate that I had three quite good sleepers in a row. 
Oh, and amazing. that makes all the yeah. difference. <laughs> oh, goodness. And I, like for myself, I really noticed that um, sleep deprivation makes me really depressed. So I had to be uh, probably a lot less patient and a lot more hard-nosed than many mothers about protecting and guarding my sleep. Um, so if anybody wants to know, I'll tell them what did I do. Um, and, you know, it's not strict. Our, our philosophy was attachment parenting, but that was tempered with these are some things that I actually need to do to, to survive because their mother having a complete breakdown is not going to be good for anybody. Um, and I needed to be really, really protective of my sleep. Mm. Um, so um, basically I found that for breastfeeding children, um, communication is the key. So it's a two-way communication where I, I'm wanting to be really responsive to their calls and cues, but I'm also communicating to them what I need in order to be able to survive. <laughs> um, yeah. Mm. So we probably won't get into um, all of that just now, but um, I just think that, um, yeah, for some people sleep is absolutely vital to, to avoid, you know, really bad depression. And um, I was, yeah, I yeah. was really fortunate to be able to continue to breastfeed and also to, you know, organise some real blocks of sleep for myself, even if it meant that in the middle of the night my husband would take a baby for a period of time just so that I could get, if I could get one or two blocks of, say, three hours uninterrupted, I could just about survive. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's really wise and a lot of the time I see attach. I, I would call my parenting attachment as well, but I definitely have some strong boundaries around sleep and around personal space, like when I'm eating or particular things. And, I, yeah, I, I definitely can see when attachment parenting starts to come at the heavy, heavy, heavy expense of the mother or, or primary parent and, and, and it not being a good thing at all. So, yeah, I really respect any decisions any mother makes about um, implementing different sleep things for their own sanity and well-being. Mm. Yeah, and I just, yeah, I think that just the ability to find find your own path and, and find out what works for yeah. your baby. And, you know, some people have high-needs babies and they need to make adjustments and they need to find some coping measures to, to deal with that. But some of us are high-need mothers. <laughs> and I yeah. probably fall into that category. I was not an easy baby at all. Um, so, yeah, I just, you know, you've got to do what's what's going to work for the well-being of the whole family. Yeah, um, and, yeah. you know, I found that keeping my babies really close when they were tiny newborns and really, really respecting their needs for close attachment it did actually set them up to be independent-minded little people. And so I would allow them as much independence as they wanted or needed, and I would be there when they needed to circle back and come and snuggle up close to mum. Mm -hmm. um, so I certainly have no regrets about doing the co-sleeping and the baby wearing and all of those good things when they were tiny babies, and I feel like it really paid off. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and then, yeah, you so say you've got a newborn and a two-year-old and, and starting to um, adjust to having two little ones and then you did you make a decision to have a third or how did, how did oh, your third pregnancy come about? <laughs> oh, yes, that was so interesting. So our third baby is um, she's a, a real wild child ca um, character and a, a real um, firecracker. 
a very dynamic person, extremely creative, um, and really just a brilliant person. And from the get-go, she was just um, a real sunshine girl, um, always destined to do things her own way and march to the beat of a different drum. Um, so completely unplanned, a total surprise, and she continues to be a total surprise in just about everything <laughs> she does. It's like, oh, so interesting. And again, I think this the third time I got pre I I got pregnant, and which was my second uh, unplanned pregnancy in a sense. Um, I wasn't, I didn't really get so much of a shock that time. I think I was just sort of like, huh, well, clearly this is just what happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> And once again, we went to New Zealand for the actual birth because of New Zealand's brilliant free home birth service. So I had grown up there and I'd done my nurses training there and very, very impressed with the fact that government funded home birth um, is provided there one-to-one -one midwifery care. Each individual woman chooses her own midwife, um, whoever suits her, and then whether she chooses to have a home birth, birth center or hospital birth, that is the midwife who will attend her. And I thought, oh, gosh, woman-centered care, yes. Uh, I just thought that was brilliant. So I had two of my four home births in New Zealand, um, and Hadassah's birth was my second New Zealand home birth. Um, so once again, I got to choose my own midwife. Um, and this was really interesting be because the pregnancy was perfect. Um, I had absolutely no problems whatsoever. I was happily looking forward to the adventure of giving birth again and suddenly was beset by irrational fear for no reason. And, again, this was like one of those special sort of like God moments where I just used to go for long walks out in the fields behind the house and I was going, what, what, God, what is this? Why am I feeling and, you know, I felt like God warned me that there was ill intent against me um, and the baby. And, and I feel like he gave me some like special verses from the Bible to pray over myself and my baby for protection. And I went into the birth feeling like there was potential risk ahead, but that I would be okay because, because God had given me this, the tools that I needed. That was my mindset as labor began. And the midwife came and said, there's meconium, you need to move to hospital. And I said, if I go to hospital, what will happen to me there? And she said, well, your uterus is broken. It's clearly not working. It's not working at all. So when we go to hospital, we'll, you know, we'll induce you and we'll get those contractions happening like they should. And then if you can't push the baby out, we'll give you a cesarean. And I thought to myself, is she trying to do reverse psychology because that sounds like a nightmare to me. I don't want to do that at all. But she really pulled out the dead baby card and she basically said, uh, you're talking about knocking off brain cells. Uh, you won't thank us for the outcome. And she was really, really pressuring me to go to hospital. But I knew that my baby's heart rate was fine. And I was like looking at the meconium and going, well, it's really just light. And she is like slightly past term, like, you know, are we so sure that this is definite fetal distress here? Um, but she kind of wore me down and I opened my mouth to say, okay, then we'll get in the cars and go to hospital. And my husband interrupted me and he just said, what if you said that she's got to have 
antibiotics at 18 hours after her water's broken. And it's only 16 hours post water's breaking now. So what if we spend the next two hours just walking around and trying to get her into labor? How about that? And so he negotiated to give me two extra hours. My baby was born one hour and 58 minutes later. (laughs) And the last words, the midwife was not happy about this at all, but her last words as she walked out of the house was, Julie, get walking. So I took a heck load of um, raspberry leaf tea, like the strongest (laughs) brew I could think of, and I actually sat down and I put my hands on my abdomen and I prayed for my baby and I prayed for a normal progressing labour and and a normal birth. And then we went out into the fields again and we walked up and down, up and down, praying every step of the way, and then – a funny thing happened as we walked. I said, I think it's probably time to go back to the house now. And just outside the house on the front lawn, I dropped onto my hands and knees. Now, by this time, we know what this means. <laughs> <laughs> so I scrambled into the house and knelt over the couch. And I was pushing strongly in no time at all. At which point the midwife arrived and she walked in and she saw a pool of like pea soup meconium. And she was horrified and she said, oh, just look at that meconium. I could feel my baby wriggling. I could feel how vigorous she was. And I said, check the heart. So she checked the heart. The heart and her, my baby's heart rate was 138. And she was born with the next push. And she was born pink, wriggling and squalling. And uh, she is as vigorous today as she was then. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, so this, like when you listen to somebody else's birth story, it's not like, uh, it's instructive on this is the way that you should do it. The only thing that's like a message in that story is, you know, to, to trust your instincts and to connect with spirit in whatever way that, that is for you. And, um, to, you know, to have options. Um, and again, like the, the key message of safety for myself and my baby in that setting was actually connection um and even like that midwife uh because of the one-to-one midwifery thing and she knew that I had a strong bias to want to have a home birth um you know she trusted me that when I made a decision on my own uh she was actually willing to allow me to do that and I wonder if that would have been the case had I started um in hospital Mm. but anyway that was um baby baby number three and again it was um it was practically a pain-free birth and I remember the the buzz of the hormones was so intense I felt quite stoned not that I've I don't know what it's like to be stoned but what I imagine being stoned is like (laughs) um I was like my head was like it was really otherworldly and it was like an altered state of consciousness that was actually quite delirious and quite ecstatic and I remember even thinking at the time, like, wow, is this a birth hormones? This is amazing. <laughs> so, again, it was an incredibly positive experience. Um, the only thing that I didn't like is how methodical and brusque the, the midwives were immediately afterwards, and they took the baby from me to do all of their weighing and measuring and so on. And I get upset when I look at that part of the birth video now because I, I feel like going, no, you stop that. Give that newborn back to that mother. You've interrupted her skin to skin and you can do your measuring and stuff and your paperwork later. 
um, I can really see that my golden hour of of bonding was um, interrupted and really unnecessarily. Like it was obvious that this baby was a fine specimen with brilliant APGARs and there really wasn't any reason to rush the birth of my placenta and to rush the newborn exam. They really needed to just leave me alone to to bond and snuggle and cuddle and sniff and smell. And I would really have loved to have been able to birth my placenta my own way when I felt good and ready and um, to not have my skin-to-skin interrupted like that. Mm. So as a doula, I'm super, super sensitive to that when I support mothers and I, I do everything I can to try and guard um, their golden hour. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. And, yeah, how were you feeling moving away from that birth and adjusting to have to having three little ones close together? Um. Much better adjusted. And by this time I had a very sentient four-year-old who was able to follow um, verbal directions really well and she had a really good head on her shoulders and she was a lovely big sister to number two. Um, and so that I had two really capable, sensible little girls, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and they adored their baby sister so much and they were, they were brilliant. And to be honest, they, they actually were a real help um and continued to to be so um and i think probably i had a more realistic idea of um what motherhood involved and i had my own little strategies and systems by this time as well so i knew how for like one of the things that i would do is i would give my baby all of the loving like really try and like love her up and get her love tank really nice and filled and then I would lay her down to sleep while she was still awake really drowsy and really snuggly and comfortable but still awake and just let her experience the last 30 seconds or 60 seconds of falling to sleep by herself because I wanted her to know that I don't put her to sleep she puts herself to sleep going to sleep is something that she does by herself and going to sleep is something that she's capable of doing So that if she would wake again in 40 minutes, if she so wanted to, she would know that going to sleep is actually a really, really nice thing and she'd do it again. Um, So just like little little strategies like that. Um, And it was really satisfying to see them work, like to see this really contented baby just lying there with their eyes open, just lying there. I might give her a little pat. And then she just like her eyes get more and more droopy. And then she nods off to sleep. yeah. Mm-hmm. So yes, the third time adjustment to adjustment to becoming a mum of three was definitely easier. Mm. Easier than one to two. Yeah. Yeah. Or none to one. <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> yeah, none to one's pretty massive. But yeah. again, yeah. I think in my case, I was um, so so more over ready to become a mum that I I sort of embraced the whole thing, you know, pretty readily. Yeah. Yeah. Except for the sleep deprivation, which was hard. <laughs> yeah. And were you still living in China um, at that time? Well, uh, we ended up going back to China, uh, Hong Kong, when she was about two months old, just in time for the SARS epidemic. Ah, amazing. uh, (laughs) Yes, and that was really interesting, going through an actual epidemic with three little children aged four, two, and newborn. Um, uh, At the time, uh, 
I'm really, really glad that I actually have that um, comparison to what's what we're all going through now. And uh, it's been really instructive and informative for me. Um, I'm able to compare some of the dynamics going on now with what was going on then. And I've also got, I don't know, I've just got some kind of reference point, like, okay, this is a pandemic, this is what we do, and eventually it will go away and we will get through it. It's going to be a drag for a couple of years. Who knows? It's always hard to know how long Ebola is going to hang around or how long SARS is going to hang around. Um, but this is not it for eternity. There's going to be a change because I've lived it. And I think just having that lived experience of what a drag it is to be doing lockdowns and masking in public places and social distancing and hand washing and, oh, my goodness, hand sanitizer absolutely everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. Having been through it before and seen it come to an end, it gives me a lived experience of a confidence that pandemics actually do eventually end. And I think sometimes when you're stuck right in the middle of something as ghastly as um as coronavirus, it's, you know, sometimes you can kind of worry, is this ever going to be over? Will we ever get back to some semblance of normal? Mm, yeah. And that experience must give you um, so much empathy for the women who you're now working with as they have newborns and, and very young children navigating a pandemic because obviously it's a really, I mean, there's lots of different groups who find these sort of conditions really, really challenging at, including parents of really young children and people who are pregnant and birthing. So that experience must um, make you really be able to connect with women at this time well as well and understand what it feels like. Yeah, there's a there's a saying, motherhood needs company. And uh, what I actually found the hardest going back to Hong Kong was not the fact that we, we had to do, you know, lockdown or isolation or anything like that. It was the fact that I had no support network over there at all if anything quite the opposite um so there's like a there was quite a dynamic of um uh, a form of christian patriarchy that was at play um amongst the missionary community over there um and i was sort of like really cast off um, i would say excommunicated as a person um who had too many what they would deem to be um feminist notions about um, men and women being equal and my husband and I did everything as a team um, he was as involved in hands-on parenting and housework as I was and I was as involved in the actual work and ministry and leadership as he was and they didn't like that at all and so we actually received a lot of um, religious shaming and I would say spiritual abuse because of our stand for equality um, and so, therefore, the environment that I was in was toxic and it was incredibly um, not encouraging or supportive. And so the, um, the loneliness that I felt as somebody doing the really hard work of mothering young children was awful. It was actually, to be honest, quite traumatic. So I'm very aware um, just how much motherhood needs a witness, not necessarily somebody who can come in and do the stuff for you, but somebody to come in and bear witness to your process and say, you are an amazing mother. You are doing really well. I'm so impressed. I'm so proud of you. And you can do this. And um, if you, you know, if you need me to take the, the older ones out to the park for a little while so that you can have a nap with baby, let me know how I can help. Hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I really wish with all my heart that mothers had a heck load more um, social support 
and just affirmation from society in general to say that the work that they do is valuable and it's amazing and it yields incredible benefits um, for society that are really, really underrated and undervalued. Mm. Yeah. And underpaid. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and you've got an eight-year gap between um, where you didn't have any children before your youngest was birthed. So what, what what did you get up to in that eight years and where did you find yourself landing by the time you fell pregnant again? I said to my husband, clearly we are fertile and if we don't do anything, we're going to have a baby every two years until I'm 45 and I am not up for that. <laughs> uh, so he very kindly got a vasectomy. And then after a few years, we got really clucky. <laughs> so then we had a reversal. And then we had um, a miscarriage, which so by this time I was in my late 30s. And um, like I said before, that was actually a really tender and uh, precious experience. Um, mm. But, yeah, so um, it was only 11 weeks. But uh, in some ways it was such a journey that I'm quite grateful for the journey. Um, and then about a year and a half later, we finally conceived our baby boy. Um, mm. I didn't know that he was a boy. I wasn't really sure. Uh, so I was kind of like prepared either way. But I think maybe on some level I probably knew he was a boy. <laughs> yeah. and now this was the only birth that I'd gone into where fear was a problem. So all of my other three births, for, for whatever reason, I had a, um, a blissful naivety about birth and I had a, cer a certain sort of faith or, or positivity about birth. But by this time, I'd, I think what kind of uh, impacted my sense of positivity about my body was that miscarriage. And even though it didn't really make sense, on some deep level, I'd, I'd internalized some fear around this miscarriage. And also I think... As a doula, I'd now seen, you know, hundreds of births and it was almost like a little bit of knowing too much. And I've spoken to other midwives and doulas who can relate to that, um, that sometimes it's, uh, yeah, you, you just don't have this sort of like birth virgin naivety anymore. <laughs> um, so for whatever reason, as I approached my fourth, in my fourth pregnancy, I could not shake this fear until I got to the point where I was just so frustrated and I was just like, why? What is my problem? Why can I not just shake this fear and just why can I not just get into a happy space about this incredible privilege of being able to be pregnant at the age of 42 and have a baby at the age of 42? Um, mm. So um, finally um, towards the – I had a beautiful um, mother blessing towards the end of the pregnancy and I had all friends from all over the Australia and they were sending me like little cards and messages that I could put up like – um, in my birth space and it was ridiculous how many of them had messages about overcoming fear and so some of them were like lovely lovely verses from the bible and and some of them were from people who, who didn't have a particular re religious faith but they were still expressing the same concepts of um you know release from fear and I was like oh, this is really interesting and finally I just told myself 
when there was something to fear with your third baby, God told you in advance and he gave you the tools to know what to do. The only thing he's telling you this time is do not fear. If there was a reason to fear, he'd tell you. If he says do not fear, it's because there isn't anything to fear. So in this, and, and by the way, that thinking, I have just completely given you a perfect example of how the um, autistic thinking works, <laughs> mm -hmm. just by the way. Um, so I just decided to latch onto that and I was like, right, if God is telling me do not fear, then I don't have anything to fear, so I won't. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I went into labor and so that was the thought that I had in my mind, but I have to admit I still noticed that within my body that I just wasn't able to just like really let go and just trust and ride the waves as I had with my previous births. And um, there was one time um, uh, this baby was posterior and he never, all of my other babies had been anterior and this little boy was posterior and he was not budging. And I went on the spinning babies website and there was a story on there. See the power story again. There was a story about uh, where they were saying quite often if later siblings um, are persistently posterior, but you've had several anterior babies before that, don't worry because he'll, the, the baby will just turn and follow the path of the previous siblings, um, you know, probably late in labor. So don't worry. So I thought, right, okay, I'll do that then. Sure enough, he turned right down low in my pelvis and I had back-to-back uh, -back contractions that lasted for about five minutes where I did nothing except yell my head off. And I've got it on video. I can prove it. <laughs> I, I've never, my children have never heard me yell like that. I have never heard me yell like that. The cat got offended, put her ears down and slunk off in disgust. Um, and it was not fun. Um, because this was, these were the contractions that were actually getting my baby turned around into anterior. And I was pretty disgusted too. <laughs> and after that, I just like, you know, you have this like this journey in your head with your own self-talk, right? So my self-talk said, I cannot do another one of those. I need to find a better way. And I remembered that business about diving under the wave. And I realized that I needed to find a place of deeper surrender than anything I'd ever done before. And if you can see the photographs of me, I've got my hands out and it was like everything in my body was like trying to just like reach this place of, of deepest, deepest surrender. And that really helped. And it, um, actually, you know, I, that would have been transition as well because he was, he, he, I could feel him coming down. He was actually starting to be born at that point. And as he emerged, the song that happened to be playing on my playlist was, um, the words go, healing rain is falling down. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. And even in the moment, I was like feeling really emotional because I, I just felt like the, the symbolism of those particular words playing. Um, I really connect with music in a, in a really, really sort of hugely deep way. So, yeah, nature and music are huge for me. Um, and so to me, that was like, um, like I don't know, I could, it was a God thing for me. I, I felt looked after and cared for. I felt like I mattered to God. Um, and so he was born and um, I had my beautiful home birth at the age of 43, my first actual born in water birth. 
and I had uh, amazing birth attendance um, and felt that real, I felt like I had total control, total autonomy and total respect from my whole birth team and it was actually an incredible birth. Mm, amazing. And and you've talked um, about the birth and kind of um, emotionally how you were feeling for this birth being a little different with, with the fear coming up, but how did you feel in your body during this pregnancy and birth compared to previously? It had been quite a time. I'm curious whether that whether the time had made any difference and the age had made any difference to how you physically felt. Yeah, I remember feeling really frustrated that he was posterior and wondering if my more sedentary lifestyle since um, coming to Australia and, and finally having the luxury of a car had affected that. Um, so I was trying really hard to walk as much as I could and um, and I was I did feel fit and well. Um, I didn't have more aches or pains or anything like that. I felt like my body was doing really well. But uh, unfortunately, I didn't fare so well after he was born and um, about just a few weeks after he was born, I just took one step and, and felt something go clunk in my right hip um, and that pain just never went away and spread to my left hips and now I'm really dealing with osteoarthritis and it's really affected my ability um, to be active and mobile um, and it's actually been really a source of grief for me because I've lost my ability to be an adventurer and um, and to be an athlete. Um, and so there's, that's been like a huge life adjustment is literally dealing like not being able to do the things that I want to do and, and dealing with pain and disability and the frustration of like I can help so many other people but I can't help myself and taking every supplement known to humankind and <laughs> um, it's just been a, it's been a drag. And so I find that um, so for my little boy too, he has never known me to be fit and active and well. In his lifetime, all he's ever known is his mum dealing with a level of disability. And, yeah, that's been really hard for him. He's a he's a, such a lovely boy and we still do have some great times together. But he hasn't witnessed me, you know, doing the really super active and adventurous things that my girls saw me do with their own eyes and, and I, I did those things with them. And they, they saw me and experienced me as somebody who was fit and strong and, and brave. Um and, yeah, that's kind of like um, a source of sadness for me. Um, but on the other hand, having the miscarriage and then having Rory and then having issues with my hip joints since then, there's oh, the other thing, oh, oh, yes, the other thing that was a tragedy for me, like this is probably the only really negative thing that's ever happened to me in all of my baby having journey is I had inexplicable low milk supply with my baby boy. So I was imagining I was going to have this big, plump, healthy baby boy with a great appetite and we were just going to have the most amazing breastfeeding journey. I'll probably breastfeed him until he was three. This is what I had in my mind. Oh, boy. By the time he was a week old, I knew something was wrong. And again, I did everything I could under the sun to try to figure out why my milk supply just was not happening so if anybody out there is dealing with the silent grief of low milk supply, come and talk to me. I will soothe your fevered brow. <laughs> I 
I will give you my list of all of the things that I tried, but most of all, I will hold space for you and and hear your grief. Um, so the other these experiences of human frailty, in some ways, they kind of gave me a deeper compassion and acceptance for myself, and also for anybody else who's dealing with, um, you know, mental health fragility or um, you know chronic. Um, chronic pain or chronic health conditions or, you know, if you go into birth with all of the faith, all of the great ideas and all of the great tools and then for some reason beyond your control, your birth doesn't work out as you hoped and you have birth disappointment, um, you know, it gave me really real empathy for that. Like when you feel so frustrated with your body and you've done all of the things and your body just hasn't worked as you'd hoped and expected and what about all of these other people who can breastfeed without any problems at all and you know I, I had it walked me through an incredibly human experience of what that's like and I think that that's um, really helped to inform um, my work with supporting other women who are you know dealing with you know birth trauma or breastfeeding disappointment or um, health issues. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah thank you for sharing about that it's yeah it's fantastic and I'm sure again all of these experiences go into creating the ability to provide really rich meaningful compassionate care for women who are pregnant mm. Mm. and with little ones obviously mm. there's a huge difference between relatively straightforward breastfeeding with the occasional little you know, bumps in the road that can be sorted out and actual pathology where there's actually really things wrong and, you know, real difficulty needs real help and I wish that I wish there was better help for to support breastfeeding. And... Well, yeah, thank you so much for sharing those stories with us. And I wanted to have, I saw you recently speak at the Birth Time World movie in Hillsville when it screened in the town that I live in and you live nearby and um, loved hearing what you had to say there, although it was very brief. And I had a few extra questions to ask you in addition to what I normally ask in an interview. So are you happy to dive right into that? Yeah, the first thing I wanted to speak to you about is sort of in regard to autonomy and what your perspective is on the question of whether care from a registered midwife or an obstetrician or within a hospital or basically care from any provider that's registered and under <laughs> APRA guidelines and whether that care and having total autonomy over your birth choices as a pregnant and birthing person sort of wondering are those two things mutually exclusive like is full autonomy possible in that setting I'm really love that you that you've asked that question I suppose my my viewpoint comes from an idealistic and philosophical point of view in terms of what would be the ideal and it just so happens that I watched an amazing documentary last night called The Jungle Midwives of Colombia and this documentary pointed out that Colombia is an is a intensely patriarchal society and the only people who are legally allowed to attend births in Colombia are doctors. But there's a problem. There's only the midwives who are willing to walk three hours on foot through narrow jungle paths to the remote villages to attend women in villages that literally have no health care and no access to health care at all. 
So are the doctors going to do that and receive in payment like a, you know, a warm meal of some rice and some beans as their only payment? And if the doctors are unwilling to do that, then who is going to do that? And it's the midwives. So these midwives are technically illegal, but they're the only ones. Otherwise, those women would have no midwifery care whatsoever. And so in the documentary, it mentions a registered nurse who was setting up workshops where she would bring the um, traditional midwives from all over the area and they would sit down and have training days together and she would say, you have so much wisdom to teach us. We want to learn from you. We can also learn from medical science. So we're going to learn from each other. And she would have these, they would just have these amazing discussions where they would um, bring out uh, the, the positives in both systems and say, let's get the best of both worlds and work together. Um, so here in Australia, I wish with all of my heart that the needs of women were the priority, not the systems um, that we have in place. So I would love to see a situation where it's routine for obstetricians to attend home births. Now that, and, and for hospital midwives too, to attend home births without it being some kind of like horribly ridiculous illegal thing that they could be doing, but just the norm. And this would not be something that all obstetricians should do or would do or are suited to do. And it wouldn't be for all midwives, but how wonderful it would be if it was the norm that in the same way that Peter Lucas and John Stevenson back in the day were obstetricians attending home births that it, there was a, a way and a space and, and uh, you know, methods by which they could do that and still receive the proper professional support and protection they needed. Because if we had this cross-pollination where home birth midwives had practising rights and could seamlessly transfer to hospital when the need arose and still have full practising rights in, in the hospital they transfer to, and if obstetricians were able to come and attend and support women who choose home birth and women not be penalised simply because they've chosen home birth and obstetricians not be penalised because they're choosing to use their, their um, uh, professional expertise in that setting, I feel like we would have more of a mutual uh, consultation type system and more mutual learnings from one another. Um, you know, if, if it was commonplace for obstetricians to observe home births themselves and there was a sense that like if you wanted to set up say a birth house like the birth house in Bendigo and there were uh, obstetricians who would say oh you know I'd like to partner with you in that and you know feel free if you've got a tricky case or you want um, another perspective call me up and I'll definitely come and consult with you and work with you to help uh, you know, the Bendigo Birth House have amazing um, outcomes. Um, so this is, the, this is the kind of like cross-pollination and, you know, mutual, you know, respect for the midwifery model of care and the medical model of care that I would love to see that I think would yield far better outcomes for mothers' babies and, and just be, you know, provide that more personalised one-to-one um, -one care that we know is so highly highly rated. So yeah, I guess I, I guess we can dream, huh? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And um, 
I think we've you've sort of covered some of the other questions that I had about what you know in an ideal world what what you think things could look like and you've sort of spoken to that a little bit and yeah coming off the back of watching birth time how do you feel about the concept that they provide as a solution um, that concept being one woman one midwife how do you feel about that as a solution to the obvious systemic issues of violence and harm to women and birthing people um, in yeah. systems mm. having experienced that in my own skin I know it's good and I know that it works um, it's really interesting to me that they have established that um, in New Zealand and it's it is really really you know it yields really high rates of safety and satisfaction so as a clinical concept it works and it works for clinical safety and ultimately I I don't think that it is at any loss to the uh, to the economics involved either so I'm really for it, um, especially because as a consumer, I've experienced it in all four of my births where I hand chose my midwife myself. I was in total control about who I had and didn't have in my um, birth space. And whatever my birth choices happened to be, they were supported. Um, I would really like to see much more professional support and respect for independent private midwives. I think it's really pathetic that um, if, if we're not going to properly support professionally and back the private midwives that we've got, then how in the world are we going to support private obstetricians who choose to support birth houses and uh, home birth midwives? You know, sh none of the stuff should be, should involve you know penalties and, and a punitive reaction we should we should be regarding those who support birth choices and natural birth in our country as absolute heroes and instead of you know giving them the impression that there's some kind of like rogue cowboys that are putting women in harm's way it's like well if that's what you think make it safer give them some funding give them some get them properly staffed and properly resourced and with the proper legal protections and the proper insurance protections and then we'll see um, and the fact is is that everywhere in the world where one midwife one woman has been trialed it's been ridiculously successful it has had yielded incredible outcomes and it has not been uh, financially prohibitive mm. so there's no excuse there is zero excuse and I do think that the, the path forward is to make it not so much midwife-led as woman-centred. If we if we look at what is safest for the woman, that is going to be what is safest for the baby. And at the end of the day, what is safest for the woman and the, and the baby is going to end up being um, what is most uh, professionally satisfying and rewarding for the midwives and the obstetricians involved. Hmm. Uh, now, I'm just, I was casting my mind over certain obstetricians around the world who have been um, very much involved in the midwifery model of care and in supporting home birth. And you can see just from their writing and the way they present themselves that, that it has been an incredibly rewarding line of work for them. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for listening into today's episode with Julie. You can find some photos from her pregnancies and births on the episode webpage, as well as links to some helpful resources she has generously shared. If you don't already follow Blissful Herbs on Instagram, I highly recommend finding her there. She shares lots of fantastic content, but particularly loads of birth footage. 
and stay tuned for a bonus episode later this week. Bye.